From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The French ambassador to the U.S. has been in Colorado this week. We caught up with him at the state capitol right after his meeting with the governor. Philippe Etienne and I discuss trade, Ukraine, and the French language. We are not advocating only for French. We are advocating for multilingualism, for teaching more foreign languages. Why Etienne is focused particularly on Colorado's African immigrant population. Then, a sound that might help you focus or sleep. One of the reasons why I think brown noise has caught on, for a variety of reasons, but the biggest reason is that it's just really pleasant to hear. The science behind it, and why it's caught on among people with ADHD. Also, preserving the history of Sikhs in Colorado, it's become a labor of love for a father and daughter. When a vehicle needs so many repairs that it's a money pit on wheels, sometimes it's more trouble than it's worth. But it can still be worth a lot to Colorado Public Radio. Donate it. We'll get it picked up, sold at auction, you'll get a tax receipt, and the proceeds will help pay for the programs you love. It's simple and convenient to donate your car. Get started at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver's first sister city was Brest, France, an alliance formed in 1948 when school children here raised money for the war-ravaged European town. It is also the second oldest sister city relationship in the United States. Well, earlier this week, a school in Colorado furthered the connection between the two countries. The French national anthem, the Marseillaise, as sung by kids at Global Village Academy in Parker this week, in honor of a visitor, Philippe Etienne, France's ambassador to the United States. It's part of his whirlwind trip this week to Colorado. We spoke at the state capitol just after he met with Governor Jared Polis. Mr. Ambassador, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Will you share perhaps a detail or two that you discussed with Governor Polis, maybe the sort of initiatives between France and Colorado that are in the offing. Well, on Tuesday when we met Governor, we discussed the very, very dynamic cooperation between Colorado and France, especially in the fields of business, technology, and in particular in the field of education. I see with pleasure there is on both sides a real interest, willingness to expand still further these relations. As uh, the French community grows very rapidly here in Denver, in Boulder, in Colorado in general. One of your first stops, as I understand it, was to a company called Aero Electronics. Their headquarters are just south of Denver. They make everything from amplifiers to capacitors. Why was that an early stop on your visit? It is a very important uh, company in the supply chain of electronics. They are very active in France and uh, My goal as ambassador, of course, is to encourage to develop American investment in France as it is to develop uh, the French business and technological presence in the United States. 
And indeed, we had a, a very interesting uh, discussion on the what's going on in the business because electronics is everywhere now. I suppose this is a bit of trivia. What's the largest French company in Colorado and what's the largest Colorado company in France? Do you know? Uh, this company could be one of the largest in France, I, I think. As far as the French companies in Colorado are concerned, I think all big French companies are here. They are the third investor, foreign investor, if you take all of them together, by the numbers of jobs. There are companies like uh, Danone in the f in food industry, Engie in uh, energy, but many, many others, Air Liquide. And, uh, Air Liquide, I think that's the natural gas company. It's a gas company. They, they don't uh, produce natural gas. It, they are not in oil and gas, but they are in gas. For instance, oxygen for the hospitals, you remember, during the COVID crisis, are now the research and development of hydrogen as a renewable energy, which will be vital, or industrial gases. Your trip comes less than two weeks after French President Emmanuel Macron and his wife Brigitte attended a state dinner at the White House with the president. The Biden administration underscored the deep relationship with the U.S.'s oldest ally. Is the timing ambassador of your trip a coincidence, or does it speak to an ongoing strategy that's taking place for the French? It's a, a little um, something uh, from the two, you know. It was indeed the first state visit under uh, the Biden administration. It is an initiative by President Biden to invite President Macron. It was a great honor. We are indeed, France is uh, the oldest ally of the US, but it's also really today and tomorrow, what we are doing together facing the Russian aggression in Ukraine, for instance. And if you want to expand this relation between the U.S. and its oldest ally in all the fields, you have to come to a place like Colorado, because Colorado is important for the U.S., in the U.S., and so is also important for the French-American cooperation. Do you think Colorado is important because of the potential here? Is there a lot unrealized? Both for what is uh, here now already available, but also for the potential indeed, especially in the technological domain. We see more and more French tech companies coming here uh, to operate from Denver for the whole of the US. I met uh, on Monday night actually with the French community in the Molly Brown house, which is an extraordinary symbol. She helped France so much. But she created the French Alliance Française in Denver, for instance. Wait, Molly Brown, survivor of the Titanic, created the Alliance Française in Denver? Yeah, in her house museum, where she created the Alliance Française at the end of the 19th century, one of the oldest in, uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, we had the reception with the French community, and, and I met with a, a lot of people, uh, French uh, citizens, uh, especially active in business, who arrived pretty recently, and the number of uh, this community are, are increasing. So you visited Indeed Global Village Academy in Douglas County the other day. This is an immersive language charter school, one of two schools in Colorado to get a special designation for its commitment to teaching the French language. And in your remarks, Ambassador, you looked at the big picture when it comes to the French and French speakers in Colorado. I will use this opportunity to note that French is densely represented in Denver, 75,000 people in the Denver Aurora Lakewood metropolitan area have a French 
our French-Canadian background. And furthermore, many immigrant populations are looking to call Denver home, especially from Africa. 9.6% of the residents of the Denver metropolitan area were born in an African country, meaning that they are very likely to speak French. We are committed to supporting any initiatives that take this potential into account. Is French fighting for relevance, do you think? Not really, because we are relevant and we are more and more relevant as a language. And when I say we, I don't mean France. I mean all the countries which share the French language without having it as their only language, of course. Uh, There are more than 80 countries in the members of the International Organization of French Language, Francophonie, as we say. So uh, we have uh, uh, immigrants now coming in the U.S., coming from French-speaking countries outside France, like uh, African countries, Western African or Haiti. I met not only with uh, two global village academy schools of uh, the Douglas County and of Aurora. I also visited the International School of Denver, where I met... um, with the teachers, with the children, the, the students. It was marvelous. And they have also developed a, an incredibly important uh, bilingual program. And I think there are other schools which are appearing now in Denver, in the Denver metropolitan area. When you talk to young people in this country about why they are learning French, what do they tell you? We discuss this, and I think there are elements of culture, of course, but also elements of opportunities for jobs. Uh, and there is a link between uh, this issue of education and what we discussed before, which is a thriving presence of uh, French business and technological companies. And more broadly, we are not advocating only for French. We are advocating for multilingualism, for teaching more foreign languages because it's uh, mind-opening. It's also important to create equal opportunities to all parts of the population here in the U.S. as we try to do also in Europe. I think you are a living testament to some of that. I think you speak Romanian. What do I have it? Romanian, German, English, and French. Did I miss one? Uh, Russian a a little, Spanish a little. (laughs) Your previous posts include French ambassador to Romania in Eastern Europe and former permanent representative of France to the European Union. Uh, You have also served in Russia. Maybe you can see where this is leading, but do you see a path to peace in Ukraine? And France, of course, and the U.S. are obviously connected through NATO in this regard. Our first task is, uh, I mean, U.S., Europe, and as many countries as possible, is to support Ukraine. We had a conference in Paris to support what we call the Ukrainian resilience through the winter against those unacceptable bombings by Russia of uh, civilian infrastructures in Ukraine, which are aimed at making life impossible for the Ukrainians. We are convinced it will fail, but we have to support the population, the government in Ukraine, and to help them also defeat this new attempt to break their resistance. And beyond that, of course, at one point, we must have a political settlement. Uh, But when the Ukrainians themselves will deem it possible and acceptable to negotiate. 
I understand that the President Macron, the President of France, announced a certain fundraising goal had been met to help Ukraine get through the winter uh, in, in the millions at least. Oh, not the millions, uh, hundreds of millions, of course. And this conference was not only an opportunity for more than 40 countries and many international organizations to announce this help, but also to organize things such as this help has to come quickly. It's not like, you know, we promise help and in two years it will be delivered. The Ukrainians have no time. So it must be organized very, very carefully so that and coordinated so that it arrives quickly. For this reason, we had also many businesses, in particular French businesses, because it cannot be only done by the governments. We, American, French, European governments and others, we have to coordinate with our businesses so that the equipment necessary for the Ukrainians are delivered really, really quickly during the winter. I think I heard you say earlier that the Ukrainians ought to drive the timeline of potential peace talks, that they will lead and perhaps NATO will follow. Is that what I hear you saying? I don't know. The Ukrainians have to decide because it's about their own uh, territory. It's about their, their own sovereignty. And they are the ones who have been aggressed. But at one time, we will have also to discuss after the war, how we reorganize the security and uh, in particular the security of Ukraine to make a new aggression impossible, but also the security of the whole of Europe because it's a major issue for European security. And finally, it's a major issue for the whole world. This war is a violation, this aggression is a violation of all principles of the Charter of the United Nations. So yes, there will be a role of on the sides of Ukraine for many, many countries in the world, actually the whole international community. On a much lighter note, the French are renowned for their exquisite cuisine, uh, but would you mind sharing with us something you've eaten in Colorado that resonated with your palate, Ambassador? I must say I was uh, happy to get to know uh, French companies making business in this field. So we were, we were served with uh, prod French products actually produced in, uh, in Colorado by bakeries or by food uh, companies. And uh, so I can advise you and your listeners, your audience uh, also to <laughs> that they can get to the very good French food in Colorado. But I, I look forward now to also to have a good taste of specialties from Colorado. What would you advise you, by the way, in this respect? Well, I'll say first that was a very diplomatic answer to nod to both your own country and the one you are ambassador to. Let's see, I think that I would suggest that you have a good Colorado beer while you're here. Well, actually, I had that already. I should have mentioned it. We had a, I had a very good local beer yesterday night after my program. <laughs> well, Mr. Ambassador, thank you. And um, I'll say that as someone whose life was changed by learning French as a kid, uh, je vous remercie de passer un peu de temps avec nous. Thank you for spending some time with us. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much. And thank you for all people in Colorado who have welcomed us so warmly. French ambassador to the U.S., Philippe Etienne, during his Colorado visit this week. When we come back, you've likely heard of white noise, and maybe you've heard it. We'll introduce you to other noise colors that might suit you better. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. December 1914. 
In Denver, 10-year-old David Sturgeon is too sick to join his family downstairs around their Christmas tree. His father, an electrician, has an idea. Paint some light bulbs, green and red, string them in a long circuit around a pine his son can see from his bedroom, and keep the tree lit through the night. People came from all around town to see the first electrified outdoor Christmas tree, and the next December, neighbors added lights to their own trees and homes. In the 1920s, Denver's mayor allowed a light display on City Hall. By the 1950s, this annual municipal project required 25,000 bulbs and 17 miles of wiring. It's a tradition that continues, including the stipulation that the city and county buildings stay lit in a colorful cacophony of cheer well into January to greet the stock show coming to town. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio with support from Sheets and Giggles. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And before we dive into this next story, we need to get the potty humor out of the way. Because usually when I tell people I sleep to the sound of brown noise, they chuckle, thinking of a South Park episode, maybe this is a Colorado thing, in which a noise plays that makes people, well, void their bowels. You guys, we found it. We found it, you guys. Calm down, Cartman. You found what? The brown noise. Kenny and me found the brown noise. Here, look, look. Okay, let's see. Okay, okay, okay. Ready, Kenny? Well, thanks, Cartman, but that is not the brown noise we'll be talking about. Brown noise is kind of like white noise, but I find it less stressful, more conducive to sleep. Every night as I crawl into bed, I ask my smart speaker to play it. Turn on brown noise. not the only one keyed into brown noise. There are YouTube videos that play it for hours on end. The sound has caught on among people with ADHD who find it helps them focus. So let's talk about it with Professor Dan Burlow from the School of Pharmacy at Regis University in Denver. And thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. I think white noise is better known, Dan, but there's also pink and blue noise. So what, sound is on a spectrum like a rainbow? What's the deal here? Uh, not quite. So I, I actually sleep to pink noise. Uh, the, the color is just more for an easy way for us to talk about them. But in reality, they're all what we call full frequency sounds or broadband sounds, where all the sounds that people can hear are played sort of at the same time. And oh. white noise, they're all played at the same volume. Uh, unfortunately, because our ear hears high frequency sounds louder, White noise has kind of a high-pitched hiss to it. Mm. And so pink noise was the first sort of slight adjustment where they played the high-frequency sounds a little quieter. It became more pleasant. People like it more. Because we are so attuned to those. Yeah. And then brown noise, they really adjusted it to the maximum where they applied sort of a, it's called a Brownian distribution to it. So uh, they play the low frequency sounds very loudly and the high frequency sounds very quietly. And so instead of having that high pitched hiss, you have more of that low rumbling thunder, oceans, waves crashing, airplane. Like I hear a jet, you know, like I'm on the inside of a jet when I'm playing. Yeah, yeah. And, And one of the reasons why I think brown noise has caught on for a variety of reasons, but the biggest reason is that it's just really pleasant to hear. 
we don't, as humans, we don't really like high-pitched sounds. And blue noise is another noise that you mentioned where the high-frequency sounds are played louder. It's very unpleasant for most people. Oh, I see. It's beyond white noise in that way. Yeah. Well, this is helpful because it helps me understand why white noise has always turned me off. Uh, But thus the emergence, then, of pink, which you use. Why don't we listen to some pink noise? So you sleep to that each night? I do, yeah. So um, I have two kids, age four and six, and since they were infants, we played white noise in their room, and we had a little baby monitor. And so I would hear their white noise in their room until they you know, no longer needed a baby monitor. And I got hooked on it. And so instead of listening to white noise, I thought pink noise sounded best. So every night, my wife and I use our smart speaker and we play pink noise. Is this your introduction to the field? Like, how does someone in the School of Pharmacy wind up researching various kinds of noise? Yeah, so that's a great question. So my background is neuroscience. And so I came at it from the ADHD angle. I teach our ADHD unit. I'm very interested in the brain and how the brains of children and adults with ADHD are different. And one of the things in my sort of interest was a student project that I worked on with a student about non-pharmacological interventions for ADHD. Hmm. Which what would increase focus? Yeah. So the studies have only been done on white noise, nothing on any of the other colored noises. But uh, ADHD children have shown improvements in reading speed, writing speed, impulsivity, what they call vigilance, where they're you know, staying on a task they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, the results are pretty good uh, with white noise. And I, I think you'd probably find something similar with brown noise. The one caveat is that the noise that they use for these studies is pretty loud. It's between 65 and 80 decibels, which is would be more like a hairdryer right in your ear. Oh, uh, well, that sounds unpleasant. Yeah, a little bit less pleasant than just having it at night. But I imagine there is some risk to playing any noise too loudly. That's probably the downside here. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, I think most people say 80 decibels would be the upper limit that you'd want to listen to for an extended period of time. Most people, when they listen to it for pleasure, it's way lower than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you do run a slight risk of that. But in most cases, listening to whatever noise for focus, attention, sleep is totally safe. Now, it strikes me that there could be several reasons that it works. One is just the masking effect. So I live on a fairly busy street in Denver. And there's a part of me that wonders, is this working because it is drowning out, you know, clamoring neighbors and sirens and thumping in car speakers that pass by my place. Yeah, so the auditory masking that you're mentioning is one of the main reasons why people use it for sleep. Some people will use white noise or brown noise when they're studying in a coffee shop just to drown out the conversations of people around them. And that's one mechanism by which people think it's working, sort of just stopping distractive sounds. Chris, I think of... You know, AirPods, for instance, a lot of headsets, they create that on purpose to shut out the world a little bit. So that that effect makes sense to me. What are some other reasons that this might work in people with ADHD? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of theories out there. I don't think there's a lot of really hard evidence. But one thought is that people with ADHD 
their dopamine release in their brain is a little bit different than a neurotypical person. A neurotypical person has a little bit of dopamine that's released all the time from neurons in their brain. It's called a tonic release. I like to call it the dopamine trickle. We just mm. sort of have it all the time. It helps us maintain focus and attention. And it also helps us limit the amount of dopamine release when we're excited or stimulated. And people with ADHD don't really have that dopamine trickle. So they have a hard time f focusing on things. But then when they're stimulated, they get really, really distracted easily. Again, hyperactivity, um, other symptoms like that. And so it's thought that the white noise or brown noise creates a little bit of stimulation that sort of mimics that tonic dopamine. Oh, interesting. It's a sonic version of that drip. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So... They have looked at study. I mean, studies have looked at is the dopamine release different in people when they're listening to white noise? Right. And they haven't been able to find that. So it's probably not quite as simple as that. Okay. So but, it's not that it's stimulating that, but it might be mimicking it. Yep, exactly. And so the thought is perhaps just having that sort of low level of stimulation creates some situation in the brain that mimics that sort of basic dopamine release. If there are parents listening who have children with ADHD or folks listening themselves with ADHD, would you encourage them simply to experiment with this? You know, there are apps that generate these sounds. It's actually how I discovered brown noise was that I could choose a number from the spectrum. And, you know, you, I mentioned YouTube, for instance. Would you encourage experimentation in families? Yeah. So I, mean, I, I think this is a supplement for traditional therapy for ADHD. I certainly wouldn't say do not see a doctor, do not see mm. uh, um, medical help for ADHD because it's a serious condition. But if parents are looking for something to augment whatever therapies they're using, there's very little downside. You know, the, the evidence is not strong enough that I would say, I guarantee this is going to work. Mm -hmm. But uh, the downside is pretty limited. It's, it's free or relatively free. It's non-medication. And so my son has ADHD and we have tried brown noise with him. Uh, okay. So you're suggesting this what? To start with sleep? To start with studying? What are the environments where I might introduce this? Uh, certainly if people are having difficulty sleeping because of ambulances driving by or I live in Louisville, there's a train that comes by that blows the horn. Mm. And so in that context, I would say anything during sleep, white noise, brown noise, whatever you think is most pleasant is great. Uh, in terms of focus and attention, Anybody can see benefit from this. Uh, when I'm studying at a coffee shop, I like to have uh, white noise or pink noise playing, and it helps quite a bit. So I don't think there's a wrong way to go about it. Again, keeping in mind that uh, if it doesn't work, you can try something else. And if it does work, that's terrific. You know, 50 years ago, an album called Songs of the Humpback Whale became a surprise hit. It's actually the most popular nature recording in history. <laughs> Do you remember people listening to that, Dan? So I, I heard it the, I, on NPR. They just did an a anniversary episode of yeah. it. I actually find the sound of humpback whales to be a little bit eerie and disquieting. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't find it very relaxing. I suppose, though, it's all in service of the same thing, which is what? A sound that brings you out of perhaps your anxious mind. Um, is it related to meditation? It certainly could be. I know that the brown noise phenomenon really was augmented this summer when an ADHD advocate on TikTok 
listened to Brown Noise for the first time and and just basically said her brain was quiet for the first time in her entire life. Mm-hmm. Uh, this resonated with a lot of a lot of adults with ADHD, especially adults who don't find that medication is the right fit for them, or at least not uh, as as monotherapy. And so. A lot of people really said, this This helps me. I can focus. I can finally pay attention. And right now, we are actually in a, a medication shortage for ADHD meds. People who take Adderall sometimes are, are being unable to get their prescriptions filled. Uh, this is hopefully a short-term thing, a couple of months. But still, for people who rely on this medication, oftentimes they're looking for anything they can find. So mm. brown noise might be a possible solution or at least a bridge until they can get their medication. I'd like to share a feeling I have, and that's when my brown noise turns off. Dan, it actually leaves me feeling a bit sad or like vulnerable. I guess I miss it when it's not playing. And maybe that's Pavlovian, right? Just that I associate the end of it with having to leave bed and face the world and be an adult again. Uh, But is it possible that my system is craving it? After it ends? Uh, I mean, they always say never use one of your favorite songs as an alarm in the morning. Yeah. And I think you're right. Is I think when you wake up, oftentimes the end of the brown noise sort of signifies the start of the day. I can say that if you ever go to a hotel and try to sleep without brown noise, you might find it significantly more difficult just because it's an expectation your brain has yeah. to relax. That's We're, right. As humans, we're very context dependent. And so, you know, sleep hygiene says you shouldn't use any screens in your bedroom. Your bed should only be for sleeping. And so our brains, when we hear that brown noise, that might actually sort of signal to our brain, it's time to relax, it's time to sleep. That's interesting about hotels because I have had those occasions where I'm in a hotel. I have the app, but I'm not keen on having my... AirPods in the entire night. So then what I wind up doing, and this is completely energy inefficient, I shouldn't be admitting this, is I'll turn on the fan connected to the air conditioning just to create that kind of noise because I'm without my smart speaker. But I think you're right to suggest that people create some consistency when they're in different settings. Yeah. So some advice is if you have a smartphone or you have a laptop, they actually have eight and 10 hour brown noise loops that are just black screen. And so you don't waste your laptop battery or electricity too much and you can listen to it. One caveat is that I've explored probably maybe a dozen or so of the white noise, brown noise, pink noise, YouTube videos. And oftentimes what they say they are is not actually what they are. So I, I saw a white noise video that was very clearly brown noise. I saw a pink noise video that was also very clearly brown noise. Oh, okay. And so you can't necessarily rely on what the YouTube video says it is. Um, once you've heard, and now your listeners will have heard what white noise, brown noise, and pink noise are, hopefully you can identify it better. Yeah. Well, based on partly your reaction to it, I suppose. Uh, I know that there are folks who use Spotify for this and um, small Bluetooth speakers on the road. Dan, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Dan Burlow is on faculty at the Regis University School of Pharmacy in Denver. His research interests range from cannabis to ADHD to dementia. When we come back, a father and daughter work to preserve the history of Sikhs in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Colorado lights up as a winter wonderland this time of year. Communities across the state are celebrating with festive parades, tree lightings, and decorative displays to drive away the winter dark. I'm CPR arts reporter Eden Lane. Come to CPR.org for our growing list of places to go and take in the sights and sounds of the holidays, plus lists of nutcracker performances and holiday markets around Colorado, all at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Sikhs in Colorado are preserving their community's history. Today, a father and daughter who are leading that effort, they are Noreen Singh with Colorado Sikhs and her father, G.B., a retired colonel. The two spoke with CPR's Haley Sanchez about collecting oral and written stories. Noreen, this project launched in September. It's a two-year effort. You say at least 200 people are going to be interviewed. How does your father play a role in this project? I think my father plays a really unique role in this project, primarily because of his story of being stationed out here in Colorado uh, in the 1990s at a very unique time in his career, especially with you know him living out the faith, the external identity of how a community member looks like that is part of the Sikh religion. So we're really excited to collect his history and also look at potentially more Sikhs that have been in the state primarily because they were stationed through the U.S. military. Uh, your father, he's the highest ranking Sikh to serve active duty with a turban in the U.S. Army. Is that right? That we know of, yes. What does it feel like, GB, to have paved a way for some Sikhs and then to have your daughter documenting that history? Uh, you know what? I, not that I planned it that way, but it turned out that way and I'm really proud of her. Mm-hmm. Really, really proud. Yep. How has this project changed the relationship between the two of you and how you view your heritage? Well, from a father to daughter, it remains the same. Okay? Now, she's not in the Army. Keep in mind, she's in the Air Force, mm-hmm. which is somewhat different, but still part of the Uncle Sam's military, okay, which I'm so proud of. One thing I will add is, while it hasn't changed the nature of our relationship, it has been cool to hear his history, because every time he says it, I always pick up on new things that I didn't know before. Um, So even when we were last interviewing him in September during the launch of our project, and we pulled out the old scrapbooks and old, you know, military records of his, it was really cool to dig back and always pull the layers of his story that I may have never even heard even growing up with him. What's something that stood out to you? I think one thing was really cool, and I I owe my mom a huge part in this, is she saved every single paperwork that he ever got. So whether it was like a performance report or his retirement letter, those were all saved and documented. Um, So I thought it was actually really cool to look back at some of like his very initial stages in his paperwork, um, especially considering this is something that most people would just throw out. But having those preserved has been a really cool thing to look back on. How has the project and your personal connection with your dad sort of drived your passion for this? I think, you know, as someone who's been doing organizing in the Sikh community for in Colorado for at least the last decade, um, I know that my dad's role has a small piece to play. But actually what really provides me a lot of excitement, eagerness, and just genuine, like, happiness about this project is looking back at, like, countless histories, not just from the military sector, but agriculture, trucking, commerce, that everyone that I've grown up with have a history on. That's that's actually been really fulfilling for me. We did touch a little bit on the history of military service in our state. Colorado's home to the Army, the Air Force, Space Force. Many come here to Colorado to be part of the military. You did mention some other themes that you've picked on. Can you talk about those? 
So some of the themes that we've uncovered during the initial stages of our project has been, yes, sex in the military in the state, as well as women in Colorado. Um, so especially in Colorado Springs, the Sikh house of worship, which we call Gurdwara, um, was primarily founded by females. Um, so that is something we're exploring a little bit, as well as the trucking industry here. Since Wyoming, Colorado have a very big trucking hub in which six have found their niche in that sector as well, um, as well as things such as uh, convenience stores, agricultural lands. Those are things that we're looking into the state as well. And when we like pull back the layers and when we think of like immigrant communities in Colorado, we often think of the front range as having the most large populations of six. But actually throughout history, when we like look at newspaper articles, something I found interesting was that uh, prior to the 1950s, there were actually a lot of six in rural communities of Colorado, um, like that of Rocky Ford in southeastern Colorado, as well as Derby and Adams County. Then you would compare to like a city like Denver. Um, so something that we discovered, especially during the initial research, is that there were marriage notices in the 1920s and 1930s between white women and sick men. Uh, there was one marriage that was so notable between Gopal Singh Khalsa and Irene Hall that uh, it appeared in the Denver papers as well as newspapers in Texas and Indiana. And then in 1940s, there was a man named Gunga Singh who was employed at Colorado Steelworks, which is now known as Colorado Fuel and Iron and Pueblo. Um, so when we look back at these newspaper you know, archives and saying, Going even as far as rural communities in Colorado, I think we're really able to to understand how deep and embedded the history of six are here so that one day it could be taught in a Colorado history um, classroom because it is important for those stories to also be shared as well. Right. Can you talk a little bit about what ties to agriculture the sick community has? Lots. Um, so if you go to northern part of India known as Punjab, uh, where you'll find most Sikhs in the world be that is the origin and the birthplace of the Sikh religion, um, that is the agricultural hub of India. That is the breadbasket of India. Most of India's food comes from Punjab. Um, so it is no surprise that when Sikhs migrated to the United States, agriculture was the industry that they found themselves in. So even if you go to places like California today, uh, you'll find the biggest peach, okra, and pistachio farms actually owned by Sikhs. Um, that was just a very easy way to, to transition from the life and the work style that was already in India and, and take that to the United States. I don't know if you have anything else to add, Dad. Yeah, I mean, you know, because of the agriculture industry in Central Valley, and you also see the, the trucking starting from that area where a large number of truckings are run and operated by the Sikhs. And they take the food, uh, produce, all the way to New York, all the way to California, I mean, all the way to Florida. I mean, you name it, they're all over. Mm -hmm. So that goes back to, again, agriculture, okay, and how to transport. And it's the same thing they do it in South Asia, the transportation business. They take all this food waste all over the part of the South Asia, just like in America, even in Canada. So they're involved in that, their ancestral, you know, business, you know. So one thing I want to add on that is actually there's been a few times over the last year that I've seen trucks driving down I-25 and they actually have the sick kanda, which is like our sick symbol symbol on the back of the truck. Um, and I had to like stop myself and be like, oh, my goodness, like, yeah. that's really cool. So generally, it's, it's, more, it's more once you notice it, you notice it a lot more than you would yeah. notice if you, if you didn't even Generally, you it. see more in I-80. That's where they, because of the California Northern, 
they go more often on I-80 or more I-40. So, and they crisscross, you know, from west to the east and so forth. There was a community that would come from, I think, was it Nebraska or Wyoming, here to come to the temple for house of worship, right? Yes, a big population of Wyoming travels down since we have one of the prime, like a very large Sikh Gurdwara in Commerce City. Um, so they drive down and then um, the Sikh, um, there's been Sikh leadership at that Gurdwara that have also stated that folks actually travel down from Kansas as well as Nebraska as well. So these themes are primarily ones experienced by Sikhs who are South Asian. Are there any themes about Colorado Sikhs who identify as white? Yes. Um, we haven't de- like dived into this part of the project as much as we would like since we just started. Um, but we have found a very heavy population in the 1970s before that even of um, Sikhs who identified as white that lived in Boulder. Um, so they have since moved out primarily to Española, New Mexico, um, but we're still tracing back the history of uh, what was then the ashram in Boulder, and then there was also one in Denver in the 70s as well that we're looking into. Okay. GB, are these histories something that you knew about when you came to Colorado, or are you learning through this project as well? No, I had obvious. Not, I did not know anything about Colorado until I received the orders from the Department of the Army to come to Fort Carson. And that was my first time to Colorado. So I did not know anything beyond. Are you surprised or excited to learn about, you know, some of the ways that your community has played a role to our economy or other things like that? Yeah, this is all new to me, I'll be honest with you, which is good. Why is it important that the history of six in Colorado is collected and preserved by the community itself rather than an outside group? So for me... Um, I think this project being community-led and community-focused and community-driven has allowed us to tell the story in a very delicate, sensible way Um, because we are unpacking some history that may be like a little bit traumatic for some folks. You know, we are covering things from 9-11 as well as during the Iranian hostage crisis and how six here were impacted. So um, to have someone who is from that community documenting these stories is really important so we're actually able to collect Um, things and not just take a very uh, surface level conversation out of it. Um, So that's been a really big focus for us. And even when we started this conversation in 2020, making sure that that was always um, something that laid the foundation um, for what is the project now today. GB, what about you? Why do you think it's important that Colorado Six are the ones leading this effort? Well, you know, uh, I give you from the time when we moved here, Looking at today, there is a sizable increase in the Sikh population here, as well as uh, interest in the history, who they are, and you know how they ended up here, their businesses. So I think you look at it from a collective angle, it provides a, a, a big scope of knowledge, who these people are and how their history goes back into Colorado, as I said, as, as, as much as about a century now, so, mm-hmm. which I wasn't aware of it. One thing I also want to add um, is the community has been very involved in this project from the get-go. So even when we were applying for this grant, um, we had letters of support from at least 10 different organizations, not just Sikh organizations in the country as well as the state, but also Asian American organizations, faith-based organizations that all lended their support to say, you know, this is something we need and we need it now. Um, So having that community really be involved, even in something like the grant process, um, really shows like how intentional our effort was from ground up on that. Yeah, that's really important, I think. Mm. How will the community's experience with racism and stereotypes be acknowledged? 
So in all of the oral interview histories that we have done so far, we have asked questions on the immigrant experience um, for a lot of folks. What did that look like growing up in India? Um, their migration story here to the United States. Where did they first land when they came to the United States? What were their experiences in the United States? What were their experiences when they came to Colorado? And um, we're really trying to do a story of not just their experiences in the state, but like the whole story of their life thus far. Um, and the reason why we're doing that is we really hope to expand this project so that it could be the groundwork for maybe another project in the future. What is the immigrant experience of sex coming to the United States? What is the experience of females who, you know, are starting their own sick house of worship in the United States? What does that look like? So we're really trying to do a job. So once this project is over, where do we go next? What is that next step? Yeah, as for you, since you did ask 9-11... Uh, I was in Korea at the time, so my experience is somewhat different from because I'm so much displaced, you know, so far away. But definitely there was an interest because of 9-11. There was an interest who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, there was more questions being asked, you know, and there's some, some really thought I'm, I'm an Arab or I'm coming from Middle East. Some even th thought I'm a Muslim, okay, which I had to correct them that that's not the case. But those were just more of an inquiry cases rather than a overt sense of hatred or something like that. So, But being in Korea and being in uniform, it was s somewhat different. Mm -hmm. Plus rank had a meaning, you know. So, so I was saved. I can give you only one example. There was a gentleman, uh, a Muslim officer, younger officer, and his wife had, she wore the, the, the covering, you know, and the, the veil. And she, she, she reported over that wanted to be with her husband. But things were a little bit rough, and it was not safe. So the gentleman, the, office, the, the husband asked me if I can lend my car to, to him for, for, for the next two weeks so that she is safe, which worked out great for them, you know. Other than that, I don't remember seeing anything else beyond that. But one thing I will say, and I'm actually glad you brought that up, is for a lot of folks here, especially in the week of 9-11, when we've been, you know, pulling back the layers of archives and going through the archives, um, there have been documented incidents of hate crimes happening to six in this state. Um, that was even documented in places like the Gazette. I'm pretty sure the Woodman um, had a story on it. There was a family here in Colorado Springs that had their house vandalized that we know. Um, so... Being able to tell the stories of, yes, the good of what six have been able to contribute, but also talk about the struggle of what six, as well as many other um, immigrant communities have had to go through, especially in the wake of 9-11, um, is important for us to show um, that the story is not a monolith um, and we can't paint an entire community with a single broad brushstroke because the story changes for everyone. Right. So what will happen in two years? Will the information that you're collecting, will it be presented or displayed so people can see that? Yes. Um, we are uh, creating many reports, um, and we are hoping to um, display that to both the public as well as have a community session specifically um, so that people can you know, listen to the information, have access to the information, and the information is accessible to all. And if you're someone that wants to get involved, how can you do that? Um, if you visit the website, www.colorado6.com, uh, we have a tab specifically focused on the historical project in which there are many, uh, there are a myriad of ways you can get involved, um, including volunteering, maybe helping with transcribing interviews, 
um, to to even potentially being in, uh, interviewed if you would like as well. What I find really cool about this project is we really hope that this is a launch pad for other states to collect the history of six in their own state, um, especially because Colorado is so intertwined with places like New Mexico, Kansas, Wyoming, and Nebraska. Um, we're not able to really go into depth in those particular states, but we've already heard um, rumors in the grapevine um, that that may be something that'll be happening in the future in those states as well. Cool. Well, this is a really fascinating project. I'm excited to see when it all comes together. Thank you both to be here. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. Noreen Singh of Colorado Seeks and her father, retired Colonel J.B. Singh. They spoke with CPR's Haley Sanchez about preserving Sikh history in Colorado. By the way, the project got a $50,000 grant from History Colorado's State Historical Fund. Finally today, a few words about next week. All of our shows leading up to Christmas will feature what's become a tradition at CPR, the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza. This coming Monday through Thursday will air encores of our earlier specials. And then on Friday, this year's seventh annual extravaganza. If you're unaware of this tradition, it's modeled after 1963's Judy Garland Christmas special on CBS, although we celebrate Hanukkah and Kwanzaa as well. So tune in all next week for a whole lot of music and memories, laughter and light. And for now, from our 2020 show, here's Coloradan and Broadway star Beth Malone with her Judy cover, accompanied by pianist David Dyer. Merry Christmas, have a very, very Merry Christmas, dream about your heart's desire, Christmas Eve. When you retire, Santa Claus will stop, and I know he'll drop exactly what you wanted from your chimney top. So be jolly, have a And that is our show for today with thanks to this festive team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Au revoir for now. This is CPR News. <laughs>